I'm Tom. I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and we are super glad that you're with us. This uh, series has been crazy. What's fun about the series, Holy Rollers, is uh, Leviticus is such an obscure book, and most Christians kind of sort of pass over it, which is a shame because it, it's so deep and so rich with um, just uh, these crystal clear pictures of God's incredible character. Um, in the first week, we, one of the things we noticed about God's character is that God's committed. And, and Doug mentioned that. God's said committed, loyal love. It's Mother's Day. And I just wanted to share with you one story where I... Obviously, I'll never know what, what it is to be a mom. Um, but I think the closest I ever got was about eight years ago. I think... Uh, I think Alice was born in October. She's our oldest. And I believe um, at that time, we, we, I, I was still working on my dissertation. And Erin was uh, working. We were living in Rancho Santa Margarita, but she was working up, in, um, up uh, east of Pasadena. And so she had a terribly long commute every morning. Uh, but she was on maternity leave uh, because Alice was born. And uh, her, her maternity leave, unfortunately, um, at that time, I think was only maybe four, maybe six weeks. It wasn't super long. And we were new parents, and, you know, we were trying to get the, the hang of things and, and, and all of that. And I remember the night before Aaron had to go back to work for the first time since Alice, was, since Alice had been born. Um, I remember, I will never forget, she was um, trying to go to sleep. And so she was headed back um, to, to the bedroom, through the hallway. And the hallway wasn't super wide, but she, she stopped and she turned around and she just... She just kind of collapsed and began weeping. And I think for her, it was this, um, well, th- th- that maternal love, that, that deep, fierce, protective, um, just fully committed love, and, and this feeling that she was going through where she was going to be torn away um, from this little life that, that she'd been nurturing and protecting and even worse, leaving that life into my hands during the day where heaven knows what's going to happen. So there's probably a lot of fear involved as well. Uh, things turned out okay. But moms, uh, we know that you have that love. And we know that that's what's deep in your heart. And we know it's a reflection of, of God's love for us. And so on this Mother's Day, we thank you, we praise you. And we recognize that, you know, there's ladies out there that aren't moms physically you don't have babies or children uh, in the flesh. But in the church, you do. And that same fierce, protective love that, you, that, that Aaron has for Alice and Olivia and Soren, you also share um, for all the children of our church. And we bless you for it and we thank you for it. And I pray that today you will feel uh, the appreciation that you deserve. All right, Leviticus, super crazy, very wacky uh, text, and, and we're, we're holy rollers, right? This is the, the, the sermon series is holy rollers. We're looking at the different ways in which uh, God commands people to be holy. Now, in American 
In American church tradition, holy rollers, as we've been saying week after week, are basically known as the anti-James Bonds. They're the people who are just not James Bond. They don't gamble, they don't smoke, they don't drink, and they don't dance. That's a holy roller. And in order to be a good Christian or a good person, uh, according to this sort of view, the key is to just not do those things. And then it's, so the goal of life is to avoid all the bad stuff. And presumably that will make you holy. Well, that's not Leviticus' vision at all. That's not the vision of the Bible from start to finish. And one of the fun things about the series, we're seeing that. And so the very first week, we noticed, number one, what holiness means is not not gambling. It means God's being radically different from the other gods and from humanity. God being radically different. God's like so... But the question is how? How is it that God's radically different? Well, the first week, we looked at God being radically committed. Radically committed. Uh, God doesn't quit. When God says, I'm going to do something, God does it. Uh, then we looked at God being radically pro-capital-L life. Pro-life. Not in the sense of making sure that people breathe or that babies get born, although God is definitely for that. But that God is for a certain particular kind of life. A life that's thriving. A life that's full. A life that's not just just inhaling and exhaling, but a life that is the way God intended life to be. And then last week we saw that God's radically wise. And, and God has a very, very clear plan for what the world ought to be like. And God's balanced things and put things exactly as they're supposed to be. And, and the interesting thing about holy rollers is the holy rollers are all of these things as well. If you, des- if you desire holiness, you want to be God-like, then you have to be a radically committed person, a radically pro-life person, a radically wise person. We're going to add to that today. Uh, there's a lot in Leviticus in 13 and 14, so I've cherry-picked some spots. If you read the whole chapter on your own time, both chapters 13 and 14, I hope you'll see that what we're doing here is representative of everything that's there. But these are some very, very odd laws, and, uh, and they're, they're a lot of fun. So let's take a look um, at Leviticus 13 together. When a person contracts a leprous disease... He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall make an examination. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is quick raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body. The priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not confine him, for he is unclean. But if the disease breaks out in the skin so that it covers all the skin of the diseased person, from head to foot, so far as the priest can see... Well, then the priest shall make an examination, and if the disease has covered all his body, he shall pronounce him clean of the disease. Since it has all turned white, he is clean. <laughs> it's a very, very, very strange law. And I'd like to point out a few things, because it can be a little bit misleading. Uh, the way the English translations have handled the Hebrew throughout the centuries have, have made some of this obscure. But even, even when we clear that up, it's still going to be a little odd. But let's take a closer look. A leprous disease. That's a translation of the Hebrew word sarat. Okay? Sarat. And sarat does not, I repeat, does not mean leprosy in, in the way that a lot of uh, people nowadays think about it. When we talk about leprosy today, we're talking about something called Hansen's disease. And it's a, it's a very rare condition, but it's one where skin uh, kind of becomes deteriorated and, and, and arms and limbs lose feeling and then fall off. That is not Sarat. 
Uh, and, and nor did anyone, has anyone ever thought that in, uh, in the, the tradition, okay? People have always known, until English translations came out, that sarat is very different from what we call leprosy in English. Nevertheless, the translation has persisted, and I would say a better way to translate it would be not, uh, not a leprous disease, but a skin condition. Okay? And the reason for that is as you read Leviticus 13 and 14, the, God explains to Moses what the, what these what the symptoms are of this, and, and to call it a disease might even be completely off base. Okay, it's, it's a skin condition. And so when you see disease in this text, when you see leprosy in this text, think skin condition. Next, the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not quarantine him, for he is unclean. Again, unclean is something of, not exactly, uh, not exactly meaning in Hebrew what we mean when we talk. When we say unclean, we mean like dirty, like muddy. When the kids go out to play and they come back all covered in grossness, we say they're unclean. But what's being talked about here in, in this text is not you're dirty. It's that you're not fit to hang out with God. You're not fit to hang out with God. And I, and I, want to, I want us to see why that is. And so I have a picture here of a couple of pictures of what might be um, sarat or something close to sarat, uh, the skin condition or conditions of, Le- of Leviticus 13 and 14. There's a lot in Leviticus 13 and 14 to describe these conditions. It sounds like it's one condition, but if that's the case, then we don't know what it looks like because there's no condition that fits all of the various things that go on in Leviticus 13 and 14. But what's close? What's close is psoriasis, which you see right here, psoriasis. Uh, notice that um, this is on... Brown or, or black skin, Arab skin, because in the, in the ancient Middle East, uh, the skin color of the, the people, the, the Israelites, was, was darker. And so psoriasis showed up very clearly in a way that it might not as clearly show up on lighter tones of skin. So that's psoriasis. Another possibility is vitiligo. Uh, vitiligo, you see here, I actually have vitiligo. Um, if you, and so does my father, it's, it's, a, it's a genetic condition. Uh, if you see my beard, a lot of people think that I've, I've, I've gone gray on my beard. I actually haven't. Um, the spots on my beard are actually places where the skin has lost pigment, pigmentation. And what's really odd about um, my condition, and one of the things that gets talked about in Leviticus, is that the, the, they're very worried about the condition changing or moving. And if you've known me for a long time, you know that about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, um, th- this whole part of my jaw... Um, left to right was all white. And I found that if I shaved my, my facial hair and I got a tan, that whole area remains pale, remained pigmentless. Um, and that's one of the, actually one of the reasons I, I wear facial hair is because I want to cover it up. I want it to look like, I'd rather look like I'm going gray than for you to see that I have uh, this skin condition. Now, A couple of things to notice about psoriasis, vitiligo, sarat, the skin condition that we hear about in Leviticus 13. Number one, not contagious. Both uh, vitiligo and psoriasis are autoimmune conditions. You can't share it, right? So you're in no danger. And, And ancient people knew this. They knew that there was no danger of one person contracting a skin condition from another person. That wasn't something they worried about, which... You might wonder, 
why then were we talking about quarantine? Why then were we talking about, um, hold on to that, hold on, because we're going to get there. Another thing to notice is that um, these conditions are generally permanent. They don't, they don't just stop one day. They can, they can change and they can be, uh, stat, or they can be static and, or dynamic. So it might be, like mine, uh, my, my vitiligo has mostly stayed the same for like the last five to ten years. Hasn't moved much. But for a while there, it was like going all over my face and I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, so it doesn't go away, but it's, it's transitioned from something that was dynamic to something that's static. A couple things to notice there. All right, let's go back to the text really quick. The priest shall make an examination. If the, now this is interesting. If the disease has covered, if the skin condition has covered all of the body, the priest will pronounce him clean of the disease. It's all turned white. He's clean. Notice this is very odd. If you have a disease, especially if you've got COVID-19, which is the popular one right now, the goal is to be healed from COVID-19, right? If someone had COVID-19 and they just kept having it and it just kept getting worse, no one would say, oh, you're, you're fine now. But notice that that is exactly what happens in this text. In this text, it says, oh, you've got this skin condition, and it's causing your skin to be white, pale, pigmentless, whatever. If, if, it, if it continues and it covers all of you and it kind of stops, you're good. So clearly we're not talking about a disease that's being cured. That's not what's going on in this text. And to read it that way is to miss it. Instead, there's something much deeper and more symbolic going on. I am a slob. For six months, in 2005, I lived in a room with nothing but a bare mattress and dirty clothes strewn about the floor. I stole one of the plastic tables that we use for our events and Thanksgiving, and I brought it to my my apartment, and I set up the plastic table so I'd have something to put my computer on. I had no decorations, no art, nothing covered the walls. There was just detritus, rubbish. I lived like a pig. My friend Mike said, you will never, ever get a girlfriend if you do not fix this. Luckily, Aaron never saw that room. And when I met her, one of the very first things that she said when she looked at my just disaster of an, of a, of an automobile, unwashed McDonald's wrappers all over, she said, this is going to have to change if we're going to be together. There's two types of people. There are people who are tidy and there are people who are not tidy. I am definitely the latter. This is not a man or woman thing. It is just a thing. Some, I know some men who are very like, doo, 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 and I know some women who just don't care. It's not a gender thing. It's just some people are tidy. Some people are not. My wife, every time she comes home and must immediately, without fail, begin cleaning up all of Soren's toys. Yesterday, I watched him for about five or six hours. And during that time, he made the house looked like a battlefield. I didn't care. I barely even noticed. The only thing I had to do is when I went to the bathroom, I had to make sure I didn't step on anything that would hurt my feet. <laughs> when Aaron arrived, the first thing she did after putting all of her stuff down was cleaned up every single one of his toys. And I said, as I always do, honey, what's the point? He's just going to do it again. And she said, she said, I can't relax 
when this place is a mess. She, she does. She gets anxious. She like can't function. It's like it ruins her mood because she is looking at what's there and she's like, that's not how it's supposed to be. Everything here has a place. And if it's not in its place, I can't focus. I can't calm down. I can't. So, and so she, she must, she's compelled to tidy up. And then she can sit down. And then she can relax. It's great for me. I never have to clean anything. It's awesome. I have a picture here of what I do to the room. And then what she does as soon as she's up, I just throw everything on the ground. And then after a certain amount of time, I come back and it's all been put in places I can find it. It's amazing. If you're a tidy person, you know what it's like to walk into a situation that is deeply disordered. You know the way that your heart begins to pound. How you begin to become bitter towards all the people that did this to you. You know that you've got to fix it. Did you notice how interesting it is? Okay, if, if, the, person, if the person has like some discoloration, that's bad. But if they're completely white, that's fine. Why is that? It's because the skin condition, what, what, what it's doing is it's symbolizing something about the world. It's symbolizing that when you, I mean, and I don't want to shame anyone here. I, I know that I personally, um, and I, like I said, I wear a beard to cover up because I don't want people to see my vitiligo. Um, b- because I know when I look in the mirror, when I see that, when I saw that for the first time, I was like, I don't, that's not how things are supposed to be. This is wrong. This isn't how my skin's supposed to look. There's a right way for skin to look in a wrong way, a tidy way, an ordered way, and a disordered, untidy way. And I didn't like it. And I was worried that people would judge me or think poorly of me because just a, a, just a negative reaction to the way that my skin looked. I have here a picture of um, this, this man uh, was born with, you can see, very dark skin. And Vitiligo, this actually probably looks more or less like what Leviticus is talking about when vitiligo makes the whole person um, change, sort of changes the skin pigment of the entire human being. Um, I, I don't think that, well, we'll talk more about it later, but there's a, there's a sort of a judgment call the priest has to make. I mean, is this, you know, has this been fixed or is it still kind of in flux? And I, I, I think that this would be an example of somebody who the priest would look and say, you've been healed. Because the, the, the pigmentation has changed. And, and if you'll notice, you'll notice that, that when your, your initial reaction to this photo is probably not as a little, maybe, this, maybe in some ways looks better, it's easier to, to see than like a, a, a random splotch here or a psoriasis splotch there. By, by having the whole thing, the whole body um, changed, there's something more, it just looks tidier, more ordered. What's going on with skin conditions in Leviticus is, is that they're, they're a symbol of something. They're a symbol that God has a desire for the world. God has an, a vision, an idea of what the world ought to be like. But there's a problem. It's not like that at all. 
In God's vision, the world is one of peace, it's one of thriving life, it's one of generous community, it's one where people worship in, in unity uh, and in truth. It's, it's one in which everyone acknowledges God's uh, Lord, lordship and authority. It's one in which people treat each other properly. And yet when we look around, the world that we live in is radically disordered. It's completely away from that. It is extremely untidy. And if we looked at with God's eyes at the world as it is, we would recognize it's, it's very, very wrong. And it, there's a, God has a sort of gut reaction to this massive disordering. I use the word disorder rather than sin because it's not just sin or really more that the, the idea, the word bib, sin biblically means not just when you lie or cheat or steal. Sin is anything that is out of place of God's perfect ordering of the universe. Sin is any way in which any part of the world is not perfectly according to the way that God wants it. As a dispensationalist church, we confess that there is going to be a day when God puts things exactly right. Jesus will come and for a thousand years will make this place the way it should be. But until then, until that moment, we are in a, in a state of disorder and flux. That's the first thing in your note sheets. God's commands concerning skin disease, what? Remind Israel that the world is deeply disordered. Skin condition, God doesn't care if you have a skin condition. God understands that that in the ancient Near East, they had a lot of superstitions about that, and God uses that, harnesses that, to make a point about what God's doing in the world. If you have a skin condition, God's not like, God doesn't care. God loves everyone exactly the way they are. But God takes this and uses it as a symbol to remind Israel that something is badly messed up in this place. So let's go on in the text. This is cool. Very sad, but cool. So near the end of chapter 13, the person who has the skin condition shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head be disheveled, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. Again, we're going to talk about that in a second. The question of when the disease ends is a little bit ambiguous. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. What does that mean? Well, we kind of know. We actually, especially thanks to COVID-19, we have a very good idea of what it means to live alone and dwell outside the camp. It's quarantine. But not maybe as we would think. I have a picture here from New York, one of the hospitals there. And COVID-19, very interesting. So when people um, die of the disease, the, the protocols for handling the cadaver or the corpse are much different now than they were during normal times. And in fact, we've seen this. We've had loss in our own congregation. And because of the pandemic, um, the treatment of people who die not from COVID or any, uh, it, it, it itself has been oddly changed in ways it's difficult, I think, for people to adjust to. It's, it's not, not great. Nevertheless, when uh, people die of COVID-19, especially when the pandemic was at its height in New York City, the hospitals um, needed to make sure that the, the corpses were moved to a safe location, right? Because the fear was that 
even after death, since we don't know a whole lot about this disease, like the, the corpse itself could be contaminating. And so, in here we see, unfelicitously, uh, a forklift loading bodies into a semi-truck and moved to a secure location. And that's kind of quarantine for bodies, right? And the rest of us are living a sort of kind of quasi-body quarantine, right? So we, I think, can we go to the beach now? We can, right? What's the rule? Wait, what is it? Okay, if I'm being physical, so you can't lay at the beach? <laughs> no chairs at the beach. Wow, okay. So we apparently you can go to the beach, uh, but you can't sit there. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, wow. So I don't, that, that's why I'm not doing it. I don't want to exercise. I exercised once and it hurt a lot. <laughs> Just recently I was like, okay, COVID-19, I got to do this. And I was like, wait, I hate this. Um, yeah, the, the point, <laughs> the point, I mean, I don't know if there's a real point to not being allowed to sit at the beach, but whatever. Um, the Presumably the point of that is to make sure that, uh, that people are separate so that um, no one who's infected will infect anyone else and no one who's already uh, uh, infected will be more infected by, or, or if you're not infected, I don't know. I really don't know. At this point, honestly, I, it's hard for me to figure out what's going on. But something's happening and I think it has to do with quarantine. That said, the interesting thing about the rule for a person with a skin condition that doesn't go away, and that keeps moving. That's actually one of the big deals. Is it doesn't become static. It remains dynamic, keeps moving around, and it doesn't stop. The way that person is treated is exactly the same way that Israelites were taught to treat corpses. So when, in, when someone died in ancient Israel, you took the body outside the camp and buried it alone. And so what's happening is the person with a skin condition, who, remember what, represents disorder, sin, is treated as if they're dead. Because, and this is the next thing in your note sheets, God commands quarantine for contaminated people to remind Israel that disorder, sin, leads to death. Capital D, death. See, God has this amazing vision for what life is supposed to be like. When things are untidy and disordered, it wrecks that vision. When there's sin, that vision gets wrecked. And when it gets wrecked, ultimately what happens is that disorder leads to death. And now in in God's commands for Israel for skin disease, he's symbolizing, representing this overarching vision that God has. It's worth noting that... um, by the time of the New Testament, the way that leopards were treated was dramatically different uh, than when these laws were first written. It's very likely that these laws were almost never truly enforced in ancient Israel, primarily because if you read through, you realize that no one actually has a condition that looks fully like what we see in Leviticus 13 and 14. However, um, over time, the focus on trying to make sure that Every command of God is exactly followed. The Pharisaic way of interpreting uh, Torah meant that ultimately people started kicking out anybody who 
had any kind of skin condition. So if in ancient Israel I would be sent to a camp, um, in, I'm sorry, in first century Israel before Jesus comes, I would be sent to a camp probably because of this. Um, maybe not. Uh, it's hard to know for sure, but it definitely would be a possibility. But that is not what God intended with this command. It's what happens when you take these commands and you go crazy with them, uh, then, then things, bad things happen. And, and the reason I say that and the reason I note that is because look at this. God's not interested in leaving people outside the camp to represent death. Listen to the beginning of verse of chapter 14 of Leviticus. What does God ultimately want? This will be the ritual for the leprous person at the time of his cleansing. Notice this, the time of his cleansing, not after he's been cleansed. This is important because what the priest does is going to symbolize God cleansing the person. God, he's not already good. Or he is, he's already good, and then or he's not already good, and the priest has to cleanse him. God has to cleanse him. So don't think of this as like, um, yeah, all right. He shall be brought to the priest, the priest shall go out of the camp, the priest shall make an examination. If the disease is healed in the person with a skin condition, if the skin condition is no longer a factor, again, healed here doesn't necessarily mean um, there's, you can't see it anymore, it just means probably that it's slowed down, it's not moving um, it's, it's stable, and the person is... That's kind of what it means. The priest shall command that two living birds and cedar wood and crimson yard and hyssop be brought for the one who is to be cleansed. The point I'm making here is that there's a lot of um, discretion, and there's a lot of uh, power that God gives the priest to make a determination about what, it, what qualifies as a skin condition being um, no longer considered a skin condition. And that's because these conditions tend to be uh, lifelong. The, the key is, is this person who's been transformed now ready to come back and not have people be freaked out is kind of what's going on here. Cedarwood, crimson yarn, and hyssop. Does anyone know what all those three things have in common? Nobody? They all have a reddish hue. Um, especially the, the hyssop, apparently some kind of plant, but when you distill oil from the hyssop in Israel, which is not the same as hyssop around here, uh, you can see it has a reddish hue to it. Cedarwood, of course, also has a kind of a reddish hue. And then obviously crimson, red yarn, is red. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that red symbolizes blood, blood symbolizes life. And here's a person who's been treated as if they're dead. And now they're going to be brought back to life. So let's finish the ritual. How does it go? The priest commands that one of the birds, there's two birds, get slaughtered over fresh water in a, in a clay pot. And take Slaughtered meaning the blood gets poured out, right? And then they dispose of the body. Uh, and then the the living bird and the cedar wood and the crimson yarn and the hyssop oil all get dipped into this blood water mixture. And then the living bird uh, and the living uh, dip them in the living bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered. He sprinkles it seven times the one who's to be cleansed. Okay, so the we get the we dip the bird. It's got the the kind of the mixture, the blood, the life mixture that gets sprinkled on the uh, the skin conditioned person. Now that person shall be pronounced clean. Notice, nothing's changed in the person's visage. Only thing that's happened now is the symbolically life has been imparted to that person. And then this living bird that was dipped in the blood, this, the, so one died, and then one goes free. 
into the open field. Symbolically, of course, what's happened is that the one who was deeply disordered and dead in sin has now been brought back to life. And just as the the healthy bird is set free into the open field, the person who's been treated as a corpse, as a cadaver, is now allowed to re-enter the community of faith and worship uh, God. has been brought back to life. It's true, God recognizes that the world is deeply broken and disordered and sinful. And God recognizes that that results in death, to some extent, for all of us. But in these obscure, weird, skin-conditioned laws, God shows what God's after. God doesn't want the disorder to remain. God doesn't want sin to rule. God doesn't want death to be the last word. Instead, the last word is going to be what? Life. It's going to be redemption. The person who's outside the camp is not going to stay outside the camp for all time. That person's going to come back to new life. And for Christians, our ears should prick up. Because, of course, we see and hear in this the story of Jesus. God's ultimate plan for redemption, that a broken world will be put back together because of Jesus' spent blood, that Jesus dies just like one of those birds, but Jesus comes back and is released up into heaven like one of those birds. And in and through that, the the sprinkling of Jesus' blood, our our vicarious death with him, our dying with him, our being uh, having faith in him unites us to him so that we too are sprinkled with his blood. We too are raised back to life. God's not in this to let sin win. God's in this to redeem the world. I think that's the next thing on your note sheets. The cleansing ritual for a skin condition reminds Israel that God wants to redeem the world's sin contamination. It's funny, I, I've gotten to this point where, you know, this COVID-19 thing. Do you get the feeling that, that there's some people out there who are just like rooting for, for this never to end? <laughs> Have you felt that? And I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand it. I, do, I, I think maybe part of it is there's a sense with the coronavirus that, you know, we're all making sacrifices together and, and that that somehow brings a kind of unity to us that we wouldn't normally have. And so it would be a shame to, like, you know, go back and to... And, to, and, and I get that, and I think there's value in that, but I also, man... I mean, what would it be like if we just never stopped quarantine? We just stayed dead. That, that is so, that's so counter to the way that God thinks about sin and contamination and cleanliness. What God wants is he wants to bring life out of death. He wants to transform. He wants to redeem. You know, the interesting thing, especially for those people um, 
like myself who've kind of gone through like a, a skin condition and it sort of stabilizes, uh, people like me probably would have been readmitted into the camp. The priest would, you know, shoot the blood, be like, it's not moving anymore, it seems like you're, you're okay. And, and I would be able to re-enter community. But I would, be, I would re-enter community in a different way, right? I would have gone through this, this terrible experience of quarantine, of being uh, away, dead, uh, apart from my people, apart from God. I would have, and, and I'd come through it, and there'd probably be some, vi- some visible, physical scars from the experience, right? There'd probably still be, like, I'd, I'd still have this. This isn't going anywhere, right? And, and, and now people would accept it, and they'd recognize that, that I, I've been, you know, cleansed, that the priest has deemed me, you know, safe for, uh, for re-entry, but I would be different. God's redemption isn't meant to take you back to what you were before it all happens. God's redemption is meant to take you through sin, through change, through confession, through being torn apart and tearing the, the, these things out of you, through all of that to come into a new experience of life. That's what redemption is. And I'm beginning to think, I'm beginning to think for right now in our experience of, you know, the coronavirus, on the one hand, yeah, there's some really horrible things that have been happening. Not, I mean, not the least of which is those who, who've died. Um, and I haven't looked at the numbers recently because it's depressing, but I, I, I feel like it's something like 60,000, maybe 70,000 Americans have, been, have died from this. Something like 300,000 worldwide, something like that. And then on top of that, there's the tremendous economic devastation that's going on right now where we, we really have no idea the extent to which it's going to continue or what it's going to mean for us. And so there, on the one hand, there is this total death that, that's going on, but it, also we've noticed that a lot of people are thinking, maybe this makes some changes going forward. Maybe, maybe what the redemption from coronavirus looks like is, is maybe some, some changes, some new patterns, new habits, new ways of doing life uh, that the coronavirus is exposed as realistic. I have a couple ideas. One, children playing outside. I think children playing outside is a really good thing. I, I've decided, you know, I... I grew up in the 80s, so I know what it's like to just be parents being like, get out of here, see you at dinner. And then, you know, at 9 p.m. in July, when there's still a little bit of light left, being on the swings, being like, do you think we have to go back in yet? Like, that was awesome. And I think it's good for kids. I think free play is good. And I think I don't think I recognized that until I actually went through this. The last six weeks, my kids have done more free play than they probably had in the months, years, before, maybe ever. And I think they're healthier for it. I call on all schools to have more free play for children. Doug, Doug, I call on you to let your class have longer and longer recesses at Stony Brook. <laughs> and then, and then uh, you know, family time. I... One of the interesting things about the coronavirus is we have more family time. Part of it is because it's not, we're not doing so many structured activities. Like, I, a lot of my stress comes from the fact that, you know, I gotta make sure the kids are here and then do that and then I gotta do this. It, when you don't have that, you're sort of forced to be like, well, what do we do now? 
Let's bake brownies. Some people will love this and some people will hate this. Telecommuting, not going to work. I'm a huge fan of not working. I love it. I mean, wow. If, if we could just do nothing and get paid, that would be awesome. But if we do have to do something, I don't know. I mean, Steve Malapart, he's been, he's been working from home for a while now, and he seems to be doing pretty well. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's space to rethink what redemption from coronavirus looks like, and maybe part of that is redeeming some of our work habits. Maybe not all of them. Maybe, maybe, there's, a, maybe there's some space for balance, and, and who knows? And I, I think there's definitely some jobs where you can't, I mean, you can't fix pl- the plumbing remotely. You can't do that on a Zoom call. So clearly, like, there, there's, but, but there's, there's, there's potential here, things that, things that we may not have noticed. Maybe there's some things that can change in some ways. And then getting together, going to a crowded movie theater. I wonder what crowds are going to be like. I miss them. I miss people being here. But I don't miss waiting in lines. And I don't miss being jostled. If we're going to say that God's radically committed to redemption and that holy rollers, this next thing you note, she's holy rollers are radically redemptive. It means that we're always looking for ways in which the, the experience of, of, of sin and disorder and death um, can be transformed. And then at every level, it's in, from in a, personal, in a personal level, which is what we're probably most familiar with, with when sin besets us and, and keeps tearing us down and ruining our lives. You know, we're, we're called to be redeemed from that. We're called to be freed from that. But it's not just in our personal lives with our moral choices. It's throughout society. It's, there's economic redemption that can happen. There's political redemption that can happen. Every organization of human beings needs redeem, redemption because it's, we're all fraught with these, these disorders. And, and as Christians, as holy rollers, we need to be looking for those disorders, identifying those disorders, and being creative and thoughtful in the way that we can see redemption happen in and through them. And so, brothers and sisters, for those who have believed in Jesus, you have been redeemed. Now, go and be redemptive. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that we will be holy rollers, radically committed people, radically pro-capital L life people, radically wise people, radically redemptive people. That the world will know us by the way that we see and and, and perceive differently. That we see the way that, that, that life can be brought out of death, how disorder can be made straight, set right, how sin can be eradicated and transformed into something that you desire, something that's beautiful, something in keeping with your perfect vision and will. We thank you for Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, the one through whom we first knew redemption and in whose continued spirit we continue to know redemption. In his name we pray, amen.